Woohoo! Welcome to the Summer Work All Play podcast. We are so happy to be with you today. Happy Tuesday. It's Tuesday. And I'm feeling ready to all caps train over here on this Tuesday. You're ready to train? I'm feeling ready to train big, actually. We just talked to Jim Walmsley, and <laughs> I'm feeling ready to do anything in all caps big, actually. Sleep, eat, poop, <laughs> dream, work hard, train. That man is inspiring. Yeah, this is a really cool interview. I think we learned a lot about how he goes all in. For these events. Jim just set the course record at UTMB, in addition to his amazing course records everywhere else. Um, and one of the things he talked about a little bit that I was fascinated by is how when he's training, it's kind of what he has to focus on mm-hmm. because it requires so much of him physically and mentally. And I'm like, oh, that makes sense. You know, to be the best in the world at something, you do have to go all in. And Jim really laid that out. It was exciting. I mean, I'm not going to lie. Seeing Jim post Strava files over from France, I'm like, it yeah. looks so idyllic. It looks amazing. I would love to live in France. And then talking to Jim, it was, we kind of recognized that it was a little bit more of a Spartan lifestyle and yeah. it wasn't like baguettes and wine and like everything that you think about France. Like it was hardcore training and dedication and he's worked so hard for his UTMB victory, it was really both inspiring and daunting to me at the same time to see everything that he's done to make this happen. Well, you just said you're ready to all caps train. Oh yeah. I feel so inspired. Oh yeah. Inspiration is coming hot and heavy. And I know I feel that way too, because I think one of the things Jim shows is the power of true vulnerability. Mm -hmm. Like when he decided to move to France a few years ago to focus on UTMB, yes, he had conquered a lot of, you know, US racing and international racing at that point. But doing that, you're putting your goals just out there. You cannot deny, as Jim talked about, that if you're doing that, you're going there to win. You're probably going there to set a course record. What happens if, yet again, he doesn't have that perfect day? What happens is that people are all over the internet talking shit. And Jim knows that, and his partner Jess, and they face that, and they come out swinging. And for me, that's like, whether it's running or work or coaching or writing or whatever, I'm like, fuck, that's what you need to do is to have that mindset of like being willing to fail to have like access to the ultimate types of successes. What's cool to me is he has that mindset and right alongside that mindset, he has this brain for thinking about training. Yeah. And I think this is a consistent theme that we've seen now. We've interviewed officially all the ghosts. <laughs> we pulled it off with Jim, which is really exciting. Yeah. How but cool is it that we actually got Jim? I know actually big thanks to Sasha and Drew. I feel yeah, like yeah. They, they did it. They were a little bit of our wingmen, our, our wing people on our behalf. And thank you for uh, helping real Jim in for us. But no, I mean, I feel like I'm not like, like all the other goats, Jim really thinks about like training philosophy and training theory. And to me, there's like a chicken or the egg amongst the goats. Like, are they goats because they're thinking about the training theory so deeply? Or are they thinking about the training so deeply so theory because they're goats? And I think it's a little bit of both, but Jim really has a knack for understanding training theory. And I think that came out too in this interview. Yeah. He even gave us numbers. It was so cool. We can't wait for you to hear this one because it's a little different than some of our other interviews. I would say a lot of times in interviews, we start to just like joke around from the outset. Mm -hmm. And with Jim, we really wanted to dig down and get to know him a little better because I think unlike Claire or Courtney or whatever, like this really is us getting to know Jim. We've only gotten to meet him in person once before. And when that happened, it was like, you know, so long ago and so before the Jim we have come to know and love through the media. And so getting him to see in this context was just so, so cool. It was also a very unique interview for us because we both had COVID. We both yes, actually still have COVID. I'm, I'm like, We're both over here coughing. <laughs> and I had a coughing fit during the interview. Yeah. So wait for it around 50 minutes in. I left for about like three minutes and then chugged a quarter bottle of Robitussin. Yeah. It was delicious. And I came back and I had these burning questions to ask, but I could barely breathe without coughing. And so I was like, Jim, tell me about ketones. Yeah. So wait for some of you can kind of hear it probably in our voices 
a little bit throughout the interview, but we held strong. We did it. I'm proud of us, buddy, but definitely hard to record when you have COVID. You went into the other room and definitely like down some purple drink. Oh, get- it was the good purple drink. But then yeah. I came back and you were a little pissed. You were like, leave. You didn't want my coughing <laughs> in the room anymore. And I was like, damn, man, he's he's choosing Jim over me. But you know what? I totally get it. Well, I mean, you stepped up. You did so well. And now I'm the one that can't talk as my <laughs> lungs are just repelling. So what I need to do, I need to get my lungs, all these little air sacs to channel the power of Jim Walmsley. Oh, yes. All caps believe yes. in your air sacs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my air sacs are so ready. I theoretically have the grindstone 100K this week. I'm going to go shoot my shot. My body's feeling okay, even if my lungs are a little bit raw right now. And while I'm out there, I'm just going to think, you know what? Jim got super vulnerable and he took these shots. Why can't I? Why shouldn't I? Because like the worst that happens in this case, as long as my health is okay, is that I just fail. And who gives a fuck about failure? That's what I learned from Jim. It's like, that is just part of the process. He's done it before. I mean, at Western States, he was on course record pace his very first year there. He takes a wrong turn right at the end of the race and barely finishes, you know? And then he comes back the next year and does set a course record and then follows it up with another course record. And he's got course records everywhere. We're looking at Lake Sonoma, Bandera, Tarawera. This man has gone and destroyed course records across the board in so many places. Yeah, I mean, his status in this sport is unmatched. He won Ultra run of the Year four years in a row, at least. Um, he's going to win. Do you think it's going to be this year? Oh, for sure. After UTMB. I'm, I'm, like you're pretty much a lock that at that point. That performance alone. Maybe Drew has a shot if Drew does another race, perhaps. But either way, Jim is just an incredible athlete, an incredible person. And I can't wait for everyone to hear this. I think you get a little bit of a new window into Jim mixed with our personalities a little bit. And it was just so special to have him on. Was there a single piece of advice that you're taking? It was kind of cool to do this interview because as I said, like I'm feeling that all caps desire to train and believe. Is there a single piece of advice that you're taking from this interview into Grindstone 100K coming up? Well, it's a good time to talk to a goat. What what Jim said is one of the big changes that happened to him as he progressed through his career is understanding that when it gets hard for him, it's hard for everyone. Mm -hmm. And to not push back against that feeling, like the the non-resistance to those feelings is what I'm going to try to channel. Like, unless it comes from my air sacs, just rebelling (laughs) against me, as long as it's like my body, I feel like hearing Jim say that and seeing him put it into practice at UTMB. So UTMB, where he just set the record, was not a linear process to absolutely crushing it from the outset. He went through a period where he fell back and the whole narrative shifted in his head. It's like, oh, the same things are starting to happen as before. And on the fly, he recontextualized it, came out, and gave himself the shot, and then goes and runs one of the best races ever. And, you know, similarly, I want to have that like non-resistance to the feelings of difficulty, or even the intrusive thoughts about like, oh, maybe this just isn't the day. Um, because if you can just weather those storms, who knows what's possible? Well, that's what I love about these types of distances, like hundred k distance, hundred mile distance. It's so different than like a five k, a ten k, even a fifty k, because it's like you have a long time to think about and yeah. to build momentum and to like turn things around to face that that feeling of non-resistance. And I think that's it's so cool that you're wandering into this yeah. coming ahead. Is there anything you're taking away from Jim for your future endeavors? I'm excited to train. Okay, I'm getting yeah. back to that. Like I think six or seven years ago, I looked at Jim Walmsley's training and I think 
like, honestly, the first thing that went through my head is, is this guy going to sustain it in yeah. sport? Like, I didn't think it was sustainable over the long term. And I think for us, we always play a cautious and delicate balance with training, thinking about long-term Definitely. growth and long-term priority. But we've seen with athletes that you also can push those limits a little bit. Yeah. And I think for me, I want to do a little bit of a trials and miles in my training, um, carefully and cautiously. Yeah. And I think gym for me is is really inspiring on that front. Yeah. Like a Jim Walmsley light situation. Oh, very, very, very but light. Fast, yes. He, all caps light. He had injuries earlier this year and the way he thought about his training you'll hear he was like okay i need five big weeks that's all he said he needed yes in the context of his training actually i think in some sense we didn't get into this is yeah i do actually think i wonder if that injury was helpful in some sense because maybe if he didn't have that injury he'd be like i need 10 big weeks yeah and maybe five big weeks is for him especially given the volume of training that he does what it takes without overcooking it maybe but the problem with all this is sometimes it's just a you know ex post facto like justification exactly. of what already yes. happened. But yeah, we he, don't have the counterfactual. He we could don't have know. won UTMB any of those years. And their days just played out differently. This year he did win. Um and it's further cements his GOAT status, but he was already the GOAT. And I think sometimes we like just justify based on results that, oh, that everything came before it was the right thing. Yeah, exactly. It's It's like, it's convenient to make narratives based off of results. Definitely. And you know, the final message is to pay attention to what Jim says at the very end of this episode about believing and what it means to truly bet on yourself. Um, Because aside from all the running stuff, which I think Jim even acknowledges would be, is kind of dust in the wind long-term, the process of that vulnerability and telling everyone else to bet on themselves is so cool. So I can't wait for people to hear this. I think you're going to get a new side of Jim. And it was just such an honor to have him on. And stick around to the very end when we tell him that at least once a month in our household, we say boom, boom with a joom, joom when things go well yeah. in honor of Jim. And I'm not going to lie. I downed that Robitussin and I was like, boom, boom with a joom, joom, <laughs> Megan. You got to get back in the game. I love it so much. I was believing. You know what else will help you get back in the game? What? Athletic Greens. Oh, yes. Are you going to take some in the middle of Grindstone? Not in the middle, no, no. Maybe, no. maybe if like you're struggling, it's true. You should just throw some at your air sacs and see what happens. Just, <laughs> just, just inhale it. Just be snorting this shit, exactly. Like it's cocaine yes, and yep. it's like a bathroom in the 1980s. <laughs> yes, perhaps. We truly believe in this stuff. Um, it works so well for adaptation and recovery. Um, basically across the board, our pro athletes are taking it. Drinkag1.com/swap. S-W-A-P. Uh, we should have asked Jim if he uses it. For some reason, I doubt it. I actually really wanted to ask him a lot more, a lot more details about his supplement use. Yeah. Um, I did have that one moment where when I could barely breathe because I was coughing, I was like, ketones, do you take ketones, Jim? And he's experimented a little, but it doesn't seem game changing for him. Yeah. If he doesn't take ketones, I doubt he's doing, but maybe he does. Maybe the mystery of that will get you to drinkag1.com slash swap. And finally, um, we love Johnji for their amazing clothes at johnji.com. Use offer code swap, S-W-A-P, to get 15% off. They make the best gear. Um, you might look just as fly as Jim Walmsley running over top of those mountains. Usually I would say false. That's impossible. But I do believe in John G gear. Yes. Actually, they have some good new stuff coming out. And I've been, I have them saved on my, like, my browser. And I check their website an embarrassing amount of times. Yeah. They're probably like, why has our traffic increased 450% from Colorado? Yeah, that's exactly what happens with me in the Google search of Jim Walmsley short shorts. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe it. The way that you told me leave when I came back into the room. You look at those short shorts a lot. Well, I was like, okay, this is my one-on-one time with Jim Walmsley. I don't want that cough to get in the way. <laughs> now I can barely breathe over here. Um, but we had so much fun with this. And 
Most of all, thank you all for your support. If you can, give the podcast five stars wherever you listen and click follow. It really helps. Um, And your support over all of these years has helped the podcast rocket to the top of the charts. And we just love you all so much. We were so excited to share with our Patreon that we were interviewing Jim Walmsley. And it's the best. It's like going to family and saying something that's coming ahead. And I feel like everyone was equally excited as we are, which says a lot. Yeah. So patreon.com slash swap SWAP, where you can get all of our stuff, the community, all of that. And without further ado, we have the one and only Jim Walmsley. Boom, boom with, with the, the Jim, Jim. Jim Walmsley. It's such an honor to have you on less than two weeks after you won UTMB in a course record time. How are you feeling? Yeah. Um, it's been an exciting time and kind of a, a real big high from, uh, a win like UTMB. So, uh, yeah, um, kind of trying to balance out and see what's next. You look incredible. Actually, it's amazing. (laughs) David and I, we had a a stomach virus and COVID combo post UTMB and you look a lot more spry and recovered than we did. And we, we didn't even do shit. So it's pretty impressive, but how are you feeling about it all? I mean, I, I feel like this is history in the making. It's been something that you've been thinking about for so long. Did it like equate with what you were expecting it to be like more or less like how, how does it all feel processing it um I think the, the there's more of a breakthrough feeling than I expected um definitely <laughs> a bigger kind of sigh of relief and uh-huh yeah kind of acknowledging that maybe there was a, a bit more pressure than I would would like admit and that uh it finally feels like a bit of a breakthrough I love that idea of pressure because we've talked a lot on the podcast about how we think you're one of the best athletes in human history. Um, and that obviously opens up to a lot of awareness from, you know, millions of people know your name and are following your journey. When you say pressure, are is that mostly from internal sources or almost from the outside be where you know that you're doing this on a big stage in a way that equates more with things that like NBA players see or soccer champions see than runners usually see? Um, I think most of the time it comes from internal pressure mm-hmm. because um, we've chosen a spot that's pretty remote from a lot of people. So for the most part, um, it's kind of locked up on my own and this and that. But <laughs> uh, when running UTMB this year, um, there was even a moment in the beginning of the course where I'll be with a pack of other runners, a pack of other Americans, with French runners, with anyone. And pretty much on the side of the, the road, um, you just hear, allez, Jim, allez, Jim, and come on, Jim, like, <laughs> this is your year. And I think one of the American guys were just like, just had a chuckle and was like, no pressure, right? And I was like, yeah, pretty much. Uh, but so at different times, it's diff- it's coming from different places. Um but when I'm away, I think it's mostly internal pressure, but also easier yeah. to block it out and and kind of deflect it, I think, is the main thing that you try to do and just say, ah, oh, it's not a big deal. It's normal process. Everybody's trying to win UTMB, of course. So uh, yeah. it's not a big deal. Well, your Ale Jim accent there was grade A. And I'm like, if for no other reason to move to France than to crush the accent like that, that's where we want to be. Did you speak <laughs> French when you moved to France or is that something that you learned while you're over there? Um, I took French in high school, college. So like I would say grammatically, I kind of understood it, but as far as, um, communicating under like listening and speaking pretty much zero. And then Jess came from about zero background in French. Uh, and 
<laughs> we've both progressed a lot on our French and kind of how we can speak. And probably another sign that pressure has relieved since UTMB is I haven't been practicing yeah. much French in this block because I feel like um, I just haven't had the energy to study uh, in addition to training. And I haven't increased my studying again yet. I hope yeah. too soon, but um, at least having conversations with people in French, like more sentences are coming out than ever before. And I that's think that's so cool. a passive sign that actually there's some some stress that's maybe been finally relieved a little. That's that's so, that's so exciting. I, I'd like cross the finish line and be like, learn English, bitches. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Our French is abysmal, actually. I feel like we pronounce les ouches, les hooches. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I feel like our French is, is so, so bad. Yeah, I mean, so I think thinking b- back to your UTMB journey, the, we're it's such an honor to have you on because we're huge fans of sports. And as I was talking about with NBA and soccer players, your journey here has been, I think, transcendent and something that will go on, down in sports history all the way back to when you moved to France. So for our listeners, when did you move to France and why did you do that? Yeah, we moved. Uh, I moved to France with my wife, Jess. Uh, luckily, she uh, kind of accepted the idea and proposal, and uh, which actually was <laughs> combined with a real proposal and everything uh, because oh. we, we, we weren't just um, looking to come for three months and vacation visa. Um, that you get with an American passport, but it's literally um, going through immigration process and mm-hmm. most of it kind of on our own to to do that processing. Um, but eventually we had to get some help uh, and Hoka ended up finding an agency to help us because we just, our paperwork was stuck for whatever reason. And it ended wow. up taking us 13 months to actually get our visa. Um, but now we have like a, a talent visa. It's good for four years. Um, so May 2022 um, is when we arrived in France. Our visa paperwork started in about February that year. Um, and then raced first UTMB 2022 since being here. But yeah, I, I remember thinking it would have been easier to come here as a training block and just a three-month stint and not do everything beforehand. And just focus on the race. Mm-hmm. I, I think actually uh, another American, David Hedge, was living in Borg San Maurice, which is not too far away, mm-hmm. basically doing that. And I was like, uh, actually, that's probably an easier call to, to just do it that <laughs> on a short term scale better. But more or less knowing that there could be stress with actually trying to immigrate to another country legally and um, uh, that the first try could actually add more stress than it does de-stress um, trying to live here and accomplish that goal. And so initially knowing that it would at least be a year and a half project in France trying to focus on UTMB. And then um, so we've yeah. been here almost a year and a half now. And well, how far are you from Chamonix? Um, I, it seems like it's a, a little bit outside of Chamonix, but did you go into Chamonix much race week? It's, it's such a chaos zone that I can't imagine what it's like to be Jim Wamsley walking down the streets of Chamonix yeah. pre-UTMB and how overwhelming that is. It's funny. After the awards, I had to book it straight down the main street with like like the award first place and the big thing of flowers and just in my Hoka sunset shirt and everything. <laughs> And I'm like, I got to get to meet these other people on the other side of Chamonix. And I just like kept my head down, looked straight and just booked it through tons and tons yeah. of people. And it was kind of funny because you can just see like it, people are getting so caught off guard that you're just walking almost so directly down the street and just like they can't believe it. Um, because Chamonix 
one week before, one week after UTMB is a special time in our sport in that so many ultra runners descend on the, the city and are all in that place. And many um, participants are huge fans and it's just a very um, all-in sport. So uh, yeah. everybody feels like you know everyone. And um, yeah, it can be a bit overwhelming to be around Chamonix. So I typically try to get in on kind of like Tuesday uh, for a Saturday race or I guess Friday start. Uh, yeah. yeah, it reminds me a lot of like the Pope mobile. Like when the Pope comes to town, <laughs> that's you going down with the award and the streets just part yeah. and everyone wants to put their hand on Jim. They're like, don't take a Strava segment. He's going for a segment right now. <laughs> yeah. We, we, um, we yeah. finally implemented uh, riding the bike in and out of town this year, which was interesting. I, I think it, <laughs> it helps as well as far as trying to no parking because parking in Chamonix during that week is also yeah. terrible. So let's zoom back just slightly. So in the United States, the you know, you conquered Western states and we'll talk about that a little bit later, maybe, but then you set your sights on UTMB and there's this learning process, um, where, you know, you go there for a number of years, you have some incredible races, but they don't meet the potential that you have, which we saw this year of winning and course record and things like that. When you have those, those moments where you might not achieve your A goal, how does it make you feel um, in the immediate aftermath, like if we were talking to you two weeks after the tougher experiences you've had at UTMB, how would you be processing that in the moment? Um, yeah, it sucks because I mean, I remember last year uh, finishing fourth, but kind of going through low yeah. moments and not really finishing the race how I, I would have liked um, and feeling like I I had an opportunity. Um, basically, I have been feel like I was waiting an entire year every single day for UTMB to come back. And then finally it yeah. was uh, August again. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, it's finally like, this is the month. And then finally race week, race day, um, pretty insane. And just <laughs> part of it, just you feel so patient that it's taken day after day after day. And you kind of, yeah, it's on my mind. Uh, there's no way I don't have internal pressure about it. I've, I've yeah. set out to do that. And I mean, it's pretty um foreshadowing to move to france to to kind of focus on that race specifically like there's no hiding the yeah. intention of why i'm here and what i'm trying to do so um yeah definitely an all-in approach but uh it was a long year of waiting and um yeah yeah i was excited to finally have another chance but also just like all right here's another chance don't make it another year of waiting like let's hope <laughs> it reminds me so it reminds me so much of like LeBron James in basketball or something where he's conquered everything there is to conquer almost. And a season is defined by whether they can win the NBA championship, at least to some people, or at least that's the way goals are set often organizationally or whatever running as an individual sport, maybe a little bit different, but at the same time, when you get to the start line or you're in those big build weeks of training before this year, what's going, how do you talk to yourself um, about that because you've been at UTMB a fair number of times every single time I think you probably had the fitness to win on the right day and it just wasn't that right day um how are you talking to yourself this year are you saying I'm gonna win this or do you have uh like a more loose approach is there any way that you found to get yourself ready to perform when it's that much pressure and that much of the season is riding on it 
I think there's less focus on trying to envision like you're going to win it as much as yeah. uh, mm-hmm. envisioning that, especially through my experiences at UTMB, that more or less pre- mentally preparing for it's going to be a dogfight. It's not going to be easy. Uh, it doesn't yeah. matter if you're winning. It doesn't matter if you're losing. I mean, to finish second, third, fourth, fifth, it hurts just as bad as the winner going through too. (laughs) Like it doesn't make it easier or worse or like it's about par. Everybody's on their limit and pretty broken, especially late in the race. So really envisioning that side of it um, and trying to be more mentally prepared that it's okay to be there. It's okay to be broken and to find positive momentum to continue pushing forward and and um, in the past, I think when you, you and especially I think people beginning in the sport really see that and they feel that about themselves in their race. Mm-hmm. And there's less perspective actually acknowledging that everyone's going through it and they think it's unique to them that they're falling apart. And more or less, that couldn't be the furthest from the truth. And the people that everyone says crushed it, said course record, did whatever they're suffering at the front too. It's just um, sometimes it's more about being mentally prepared to kind of suck it up and soldier on a bit with it, depending on the scenario. But if you're feeling good and you can eat a bit, um, it's going to be mostly like pretty crappy for everyone and just pushing, pushing, pushing when everyone has a low moment. Yeah. How how did that play out during the race? Because Starting out at UTMB, it seemed like you struggled a little bit early on. And then there was kind of some of these moments where things started to transform and click. Did you think about history during those moments? Or do you think about history at all as you were racing? Like, what are the, I mean, there's these like huge narratives on you as an athlete. Do you picture those during the race itself? Um, so, sometimes you you can get a little emotional thinking about potentially winning a race before it's actually happened and yeah i think i've had that Mm -hmm. happen and it fall apart or it happens before you end up still holding on um but i think i try not to focus too much on that in the race um because you have so much still to like in front of you to still work on and still get through so to get caught up in anything like that um i don't think it was until i was really valorcine i think i had a good feeling that things were going to be fine. Um, and then, but then I would say I knew I moved up from Valacine to La Flagere good enough that pretty much someone wasn't going to eat enough time to be within striking distance on the descent. So finally yeah. on the descent, I got to kind of maybe take the, the foot off the pedal a bit. Um, <laughs> as far as low moments and stuff, I mean, I think the, the race was almost just a carbon copy from 2022 um Killian wasn't in the race but pretty much I felt more in the role of Killian from last year and Zach was Mm -hmm. more in my shoes from 2022 I almost had an identical low point from uh Berton to Benati which is about um I think 100k to 110k maybe um kind of area um just after Cormier uh and Zach was on fire during that section um but then I realized I didn't really lose any time on the climb up to Grand Colfere, so, and I knew a split mm-hmm. wasn't um, wasn't bad that I ran. I didn't run maybe as fast as I wanted to, but it wasn't bad. I just I, I could see Zach was actually running really fast and feeling really good, and just kind of had to wait it. Um, but on the backside of Grand Colfere, <laughs> starting to ask more questions of like who's behind me, what's going on, 
how yeah. far back am I going to, like how many people are going to pass me? Um, and just hanging in, hanging in, hanging in. But then uh, made a few changes, uh, shoe change, um, finally got in some calories, some caffeine um, and Champelac and uh, you switched to kind of a, or I, I at least switched to a little bit of a lighter um, setup with my my mandatory gear of mm-hmm. instead of having a bit heavier, more durable stuff through the night, I'll have some things that'll like gloves, jacket. Um, you can switch out or pants, switch out that you use during the night, but then you want a lighter version during the day, and you you're not going to touch them when it's pretty hot out. So the pack, and and then you only have nutrition for two hours instead of six hours so that makes probably the biggest weight difference um so a couple things and you hit a little bit of a road section afterwards and that changes the stride a little bit so uh i think a few a few things all came together to just finally filing feeling like things are clicking and and uh i could feel i was catching um making some time up but i didn't realize how quickly i was actually making time up until i spotted zach uh Maybe when he was about four minutes away, there was a big like elbow in the trail and I could see him across a valley and I was just like, oh man. And I took a basically a mental split of, I looked at my watch and was like, I need to check when I get there, how much time that is. And it was about four minutes wow. and I knew basically that meant I ate six minutes up, but really, really quick. Um, and that was quite surprising. And I didn't know if that was me moving forward or him moving back. Um, yeah. But in retrospect, it's me moving forward, I would say. I don't think Zach had much of a weak point in his race. I think he ran really, really well. Um, So uh, I think that's just so cool. I feel like there's a moment there that will go down in history. The the past? Well, not the past. More the the moment of when the narrative shifted. Mm -hmm. Um, When it sounds like with Jess, your crew, you might have done some changes in the approach because we were there and got to see you you looked amazing whenever we saw you, but at the same time, like when we were tracking, we're like, well, these splits don't usually go this direction and then reverse. And what makes you so special is even though in the past you have been in these situations where the splits had started going the wrong direction and you still recovered, but maybe didn't have this transcendent day. Somehow you hit that point where you're like thinking about people behind you, I mean, at one point, I think you fell into third. um, And that's not the type of thing where usually we see one of the best performances of all time come from that. Like, it was a feat of mental resilience and strength in that moment. So was there anything that you told yourself to help with that process outside of the, like, logistics of changing gear and stuff? Because I think every one of us in life has these moments where the the trajectory starts going in the wrong direction. And we're like, oh, fuck, this is my future. Like, how did you do that? Um, yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure because uh, it was <laughs> going that direction mentally for me too. Um, but for the most part, I think um, another thing I can think of is I, I had a few more calories in my bottles um, mm. at night. And I was still sipping on the bottles well, even though maybe I wasn't eating as many of my gels and, and bars. Um, which I had hoped to eat more, but the the bottles were still going down, so I was still getting over 200 calories, so it was hanging in there, hanging in there. Um, But more or less, it was just being able to hang in there when I wasn't feeling good that uh, still have a chance. And I think when Germain caught me, I was like, man, he's going to 
he's going to win. Like, he's going to catch Jack and he's going to go on. Like, he must be moving forward. But there was a little bit of a moment of just seeing someone in as much difficulty as I felt. But actually seeing someone, you're like, it's another reminder that we're all in the same boat. Things are fine. Don't panic. Like, this is where you're supposed to be. Um, This race is difficult. This is fine as everything burns around you. (laughs) Exactly. Did you find yourself so, I mean, I feel like I saw you, I got goosebumps actually watching you do the final climb to La Flagere. You were running so fast. And I was like, dude, Jim, you got it locked up. Uh, You can show, man. Did you find yourself as you were, you know, as you made the move on Zach and you passed, was there a particular type of terrain that you were looking forward to? You were like, this is my jam. This is my shit. Like, I got this. Whether it's like uphills, flats, non-technical, technical, technical, um, or you just good at all because um, it's, it's that, that's how it seems on you know when we watch you run on the live feed or see you live but like what type of terrain do you thrive on on when you know you're in these moments um I think it it has to be a little bit comparative of maybe where I have a a, a greater strength compared to other people mm-hmm. um with Zach I could tell perhaps really steep climbing um where everyone has to hike I had a yeah, a big strength difference. And that's been something I've been working on a lot, uh, especially where I'm living here in France. We have lots and lots of steep climbs that you, ha- you have to hike day to day in your training. So I, I drew confidence mainly on the Monte du Bovine, um, which is the climb from Champé-Lac before Triant. Um, and then I knew that they changed the climb a little bit out of Triant up this, uh, you had over a mile at 30%. Um, where usually you switch back a different one. Um, and most yeah. people were going to hit that and just feel a complete wall. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas 30% is not so uncommon where I'm living. So uh, I, I knew I could probably hike that a lot faster than anyone. And I mean, I hiked it just probably like everyone else, but I think I probably hiked it five minutes faster than everyone else. So that was wow. a point I was really looking forward to. And then surprisingly, like... Um, I know I only scouted out the last climb because they changed it, I think, sometime like a week or so before the course. They made an official call to change the last climb a little bit. And we ran it in 2017 because they changed it, I think, during the course because of weather. Um, So I'd done it once, but I remember the memory of that. It was just so awful. And I was like, I need to go (laughs) see this thing again. Um, But the the descent is pretty awful. It's really, really technical. Um, But I think comparatively technical wise um i tend to do uh pretty well on technical terrain um so i figured that could be a fairly good moment plus um i found that the last climb probably wasn't uh most efficient to uh hike that it was probably 10 to 15 percent maybe moments of hiking but for the most part it was actually not as steep as the two previous climbs so um my strategy was with that if if I could jog it I would jog it because um when I did a little run through on Wednesday before the race uh my takeaway was that running was significant like probably five to ten minutes faster per mile um to just do a simple jog uh same effort than it was because it just wasn't steep enough to to step it out 
I love that. Yeah, we have this thing on here called Team Never Hike, where, I mean, obviously you have to hike in many situations, but if you can run a few more steps of a climb, just how much of a difference it makes, both mentally and physically. And as you're running up that climb from La Flagere, I was like, we need Jim a Team Never Hike shirt. He's like embodying it beautifully. So that was was so cool to see. Did you feel like your ankle, so um, I really feel for you on ankles. Did you feel like your ankle was holding up? I know you, you, prior to this race, you had an ankle injury where you had to drop out of Worlds. How was that coming into the race being on such technical terrain um how did you navigate that um i I would say i was able to build up my confidence through training enough that it wasn't an issue during the race um but it was a pretty bad ankle sprain in the beginning of may um and kind of the recovery that i had to take for it was how i learned maybe how bad it really was because i tried to push through it initially Mm. i mean i think i took three days off of running, but then went straight back into like 115 miles with 40,000 feet or something. And the ankle just every day was getting completely swollen back up that it was just something was wrong. And then my Achilles started having a lot of issues as well. And I was just realizing like it was spiraling out of control rather than being able to train through it. And it was going to need to be treated. So um, I would say I took extra time off like probably extra two or three weeks after people told me I should start trying to run it just didn't feel right um so I took as much time as I could and um finally I would say I started maybe one week with one with one week to spare to kind of do my ideal build up from zero to getting ready for UTMB um maybe I had one leisure week of flexibility if something else popped up or I had a problem but um for the most part, it was on pretty tight uh, timeline to get from how much time I did take off from the ankle to finally trying to get the training that I wanted to get in. And I would say by the end of it, um, I was pretty confident because I was able to get in all of my training without any issues or hiccups. So, um, And then in addition, um, in years past, I think I've really flirted with overtraining for especially UTMB especially, and mm-hmm. especially with the turnaround between Western States and UTMB. So before I even did any training, I just kept of where I wouldn't go above. And um, I pretty much almost stuck to that, uh, but pretty close. And um, (laughs) so I think that was pretty key too, to not seek to push for more and more and more, even though things felt good. That's incredible. And one of the the things to me that I just wanted to jump in for our listeners is, I don't know if everybody that follows the sport and just like kind of the ultra end realizes that you've made yourself through training the best at everything. You don't necessarily do the short stuff as much, but you have things like the Mount Tam FKT um, and shorter distance events. And we've talked about it on the podcast before. I raced you back in 2016 before you had really established yourself internationally, though you were already Jim Wamsley. We just didn't know. And you beat me by like miles at a 30K. Actually, you were warming up. I saw you, Jim, warming up. And I told David, I was like, I'm so sorry. And I, <laughs> I, like, I believe in David so hard. Like, I, and I've like almost never said that before. Yeah. And She's it was like, just second like, place is okay. I just saw beauty happen. And mm-hmm. it was just, it was so cool seeing you warm up and then just seeing you absolutely wreck shit in the yeah. race. But yeah. what, what that draws home to me is when you're talking about training, you just gave us a little hint into that. And I'd love to talk a little bit more about it. You've developed a training philosophy for yourself um, that works so well and you apply it to a bunch of different things. It's not just 
oh, I'm going to be good. I'm going to do a ton of work and be good at just these long ultras. Like you have shown that you can apply it to whatever you set your mind to, whether it's like a world championships, an ultra, a short FKT, something like that. So I'd actually love to hear a little bit about your training because before this race, you went dark on Strava publicly, I think. Um, and so it, I think a lot of us out there that are big fans are like, what's Jim doing? So what motivated the decision first to um, stop publicly uploading all of your runs to Strava? Yeah. Um, so I guess to answer that first, uh, it just kind of, I think I wanted to keep it like almost 50-50 before Worlds, like not try to keep yeah. some cards to myself. But then it turned into the ankle injury popped up. Um, I just had to really focus on myself and day by day um, what I needed to do and not feel like mm -hmm. um, I needed to progress in a certain speed or anything like that. It was like wasn't planning the next week really until I felt comfortable with the week I was currently in and, and where mm -hmm. I saw that going. So I would say it was so such short-term planning on what next week would look like um, that I needed to focus a bit more on myself with that and that I just didn't need the noise of um, people seeing things go good or seeing things go bad. Uh, in this case, it would have been probably people getting so excited that things were going so well because, I mean, even still I have some <laughs> runs that I haven't unprivated that I think they're pretty crazy. Like I, I had maybe a 14-hour long run um, from my house that was pretty crazy. Uh, that was kind of the main, wow. the main long run, but... Um, I think it was only 50 miles but it had uh maybe 8,000 meters of climbing like quite a Ooh. bit <laughs> just up <laughs> and down amazing. and lots of hiking and it even finished kind of flat just to get in some miles and scout out actually a race I did maybe two weeks after that to scout out the end of that oh. course but you need um, to break the internet I was gonna say, yeah. yeah. Just put it all public at once. Let all the Strava segments go down yeah, all yeah. at one to, time. Like, well, the the biggest like thing to not do that um, is yeah, I have to go back and make everything unprivate all one at a time. There's no easy oh. way to do it. So Oh, I'll do that for you, Jim. Now, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, I, mean, I, I don't care enough to, to go back and do too much. But part of that I've also wondered about of like when I've gone back to Western States and I've gone back and done other races of how much that lets other people have at least like kind of the playbook of how I did it. I think it's playing yeah. a bit too nice to, to give everyone an identical carbon copy to work with um, to try to replicate. <laughs> but at the same time, I think what I've also realized through uh, Strava is um, I do have a bit of an ability for volume and, and kind of uh, pretty in tune with what I think is the right pace, but tends to be probably too fast for most people. Um, if you try to copy it, it tends to not work out as well. So it just goes to, it's individual for me, but um, people probably would need to tweak it as is. And then rewinding a little bit more, uh, the first time we actually raced was at the same race you're thinking of in 2016 at Dope Fence Me In, but we actually raced in 2014. Oh, For really? the first Whoa. time there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Where? So, um, oh, at oh, Dope Fence Me In, yeah. Yeah, because I was living in Montana at the time, so I was a ah. local um i don't know how that went but uh yeah yeah like that and then i don't know if you raced, actually ate no, shit you in were, that race you were at 20 uh way too cool i've actually dnf'd way too cool uh in 2015 but uh i was there racing that one too 
Okay, by the transitive property, Jim has DNF'd a race that I have won, which means (laughs) that I, no. Um, And I think actually what you said about training in the playbook is really fascinating because, um, you know, we get windows directly into a lot of pro athletes' internal narratives. um, And you are held up on a pedestal within the sport for a lot of very valid reasons. At the same time, um, people that have tried to duplicate that have often found themselves, you know, in a puddle on the side of the trail. Um, and it just hasn't worked out for them in the same way. How do you think you've been able to balance the, you know, focus on training in a methodical way where I always try to tell people like, you're brilliant on this training theory stuff. They like, it's obvious. Um, and you're doing it in such a way that is like perfect for you. How have you balanced like that accumulation of stress with recovery? Like how have you made it work? Because when you first came onto the scene, I remember people whispering like, oh, this isn't going to be sustainable. Not only has it been sustainable, you have only improved. You have totally proved all those bitches wrong. (laughs) How is that possible? I think perhaps people underestimate how powerful it is to make life boring and simple and, uh, (laughs) and kind of joke with Jess that one of my superpowers is to basically turn off as well. Um, so, uh, so I can train big, say five hours in a day, but then outside of that, I turn off pretty good, which means I'm pretty useless outside of, uh, training going on. (laughs) But, um, I'm, I would say it's one of my superpowers to turn off that way. Um, and then I think uh, even I like reading your articles where you've digested some training philosophies and, and summarized them a lot simpler than reading papers and papers and papers of research, um, which has been really fun. Uh, and I think you cranked out a few really interesting ones all within this like a, a couple of months. And it was uh, almost like, man, I, I think he's almost going too fast and missing some of the good nuggets right now. But um, <laughs> d- depending on what you're doing, uh, I've, I but I've really... So I guess one of the hard things is I've never taken the time to really try to synthesize what I'm doing, what I'm, my goal is in training, what my philosophy is. So for me to talk about it, it's a little bit just kind of BSing because it's a bit off the top of my head. But I've really yeah. always identified, especially it's because maybe it's becoming more trending, but um, the the theory of kind of the zone two um, long, long training. And I think I can look back until my high school training of just, I've always felt like I identify with volume based training, um, with really minuscule amounts of stimulus to get fast. Like I kind of get maybe even 90% of my speed within just a couple weeks. Like I'm just not going to get fast, fast enough to win true track races. And that was maybe even one of the more depressing parts about racing track back in the day is like, people would be able to sharpen, sharpen, sharpen. And, um, I would hit most of my best fitness just off the volume, get a couple workouts in and probably hit about what I was going to hit for a PR. But then people would hit more quality workouts, 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 and I would just start falling apart over the season. And it just didn't work for me. Um, I think the change to train for a race every month or, or every two, three months, um, that sort of, uh, flow of, training race training race out rather than the traditional high school college running background of racing once or twice a week um didn't work well for me so there's a couple shifts that way and then um you've also 
um, digest a big training philosophy on, I mean, one of the most trendy things right now is the Norwegian training method and the double yeah. threshold stuff, um, kind of what to hit. And for the most part, I find it um, irrelevant to um, overtraining too quickly for ultra. It just takes too yeah. much energy wise for at least me um, when I apply it. However, it, when I do something like um, I've dropped down to do a half marathon before, I found with just two to three weeks of double uh, workouts twice a week, like I can hit pretty much close to my potential, what I feel like I'm going to hit in a half marathon, basically off of ultra training and then just quickly switching gears and then just doing the half marathon off of like that double threshold sort of work. So I found if, if potentially you're doing a shorter race, you can get a lot of sharpening really quick, but um, for the most part, my training's pretty boring. It's volume based. It's gotten a lot steeper over the years. <laughs> it's it's a lot more vertical. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of underestimated strength that comes with uh, concentrating on vertical. And what happens is your hours of training go up, and then more and more and more you're getting into that zone two area of where you're just flirting in for hours upon hours, and then all of a sudden um, you there's different ways to think about it, but, um, potentially even like pushing your, your threshold essentially faster, faster, faster. So you have a, a clear knack for training theory. It's really, yeah. it's really fun actually to hear you describe this whole process. I feel like my hot take is that Jim Walmsley would be an incredible coach yeah, uh, well, across, we, across many different disciplines. Like yeah. I feel like trail ultras, short distances track, it would be, it would be so cool to see you coach, but you need a book, the Jim Walmsley method. Yeah. We right. Can, we can be your ghostwriters just to like help because I think you have totally um, shifted a lot of what people think training theory could become. And you've influenced so much of how everyone thinks, including people like Killian, I think. Like you have helped guide the entire sport. Very cool stuff. It's so cool. Do you have a general framework for how you make decisions surrounding your own training? Like, is this something, are you, do you describe yourself more as like a soul runner? So you wake up in the morning and you feel called to do something specific, or are you kind of like mapping this out over both micro and macro cycles? <clears throat> I would say micro macro cycles, um, would be the most mm -hmm. accurate way because for the most part, day to day, um, I would say throughout the week, I can do anything what friends are up to do. So meeting up with friends is one of the most motivating ways to, to get out for training, especially when you're tired. So yeah. being able to have a few people, but then I say like when it comes Saturday, my weeks end on Sunday. So, um, which even just a seven day training cycle is pretty arbitrary. And I've always, I've tried to switch to a 10 day cycle and it just didn't work. I started adding up the numbers and I was just doing less and less. Mm -hmm. So I don't know, but and I'm used to seven days. Strava logs it in seven days, so it works. But um, <laughs> it's interesting to change the number of days. But uh, my weeks end on Sunday, and I just say, like, Saturday, Sunday, I tend to be a lot more strict on what I have to do because um, mm -hmm. I'm looking at it from a weekly perspective. Um, and for the most part, I'm happy if I hit my weekly numbers. And so for four or five days of the week, I'm definitely uh, pretty flexible on what I'm trying to do and what what routes I'm doing. It kind of goes to, well, who's motivated to do what? And uh, yeah, that sounds fun. Like, let's go do it. And how does it work in with the week? And if you're on top of your week, then Saturday, Sunday become really, really easy. And then if you get caught going to do something fun on Saturday, Sunday, sometimes you overshoot and do too much. But um, you just have to keep it in mind. And then maybe the next week, you, you don't have to bump up. You're, you're fine enough and... Um, but I think as I've 
shift focus from where I've been at, where I was starting in, say, 2016 to 2018, 19 to 21, 22, 23. Um, there's been just a, a massive shift in... Uh, perspective of vertical training per week which I think mm. is pretty mm -hmm. correlated with time um, I, I haven't been able to separate the two if I'm doing a certain distance with the amount of climbing the the time ends up being pretty consistent so I'm tracking all three but mostly it's distance and vertical and I'm interested in the amount of time but less worried about it where it's also interesting to think about other sports that are almost purely based time-based whether it's cycling skiing yeah. Um, swimming, I think, can be time-based too. Um, so those sports come in with a really nice perspective because I think when you shift a bit more to time-based, it becomes uh, more patient. Um, you're, you're less rushed to get it done because it doesn't matter how fast, mm -hmm. how slow you do it. Um, five hours is five hours, whether you, you cover 30K or 50K. Um, yeah. It doesn't matter so much. So um, it, there's been a big shift towards that perspective within the training. We found the same thing with we still plan almost exclusively though. There are some variants with distance, um, for athletes that are doing tons of vert. And I think part of it is just like, we found that the, there's usually general correlation, but sometimes there isn't and athletes often underdo it on time-based, but totally in the kind of the same boat with that. So as you're talking about volume accumulation and these weekly cycles that you're thinking about, as you build up to UTMB, what type of, um, ranges are you generally targeting in your build weeks yeah so i mean the goal for this one was to hit three weeks of 125 miles with 45 to 55,000 feet um and it wow. was actually surprising that uh i think zach was getting a really good sense of where he's at and what he needs to do because our numbers were very very similar um i think he was yeah. a little above me in volume just a bit. Um, so it's interesting to keep an eye on Zach and uh, watch his because he's, he was logging it publicly. And yeah. I'm, I'm a dork. I like checking up on people. But um, the the other interesting side of it is I've done volume like that at altitude. And I, I've just done it mostly out of like camping out of a tent. And I think that's what David Hedges did for Nolan's. Um, it's, it's hard work and it takes like its toll on you where Zach's actually got just the luxury bus going on when he's out in the mountains. And that, that could be a huge, a huge influence on um, helping increase his recovery. But I found that um, training in, in Colorado at high altitude doing that sort of vert, I mean, I've gotten extremely fit, but then transferring it over to traveling um, and then showing up and getting it all to click on the right day has been complicated. And that's where um, being based in France instead has really simplified so many factors to just make showing up for the day a lot more consistent. So even like 2022, where maybe I considered it a bit of a almost day, it almost happened, but all in all, it ended up maybe falling a little bit on wasn't my best performance. Um, that was still pretty good. So... <laughs> Yeah. Um, I think reducing so many variables has helped increase the consistency of uh, what sort of expectation to have on race day. I love how you're talking about Zach in the mountains with his van, and I can just see him with like eight trillion waffles uh, yeah. <laughs> to, to power his training. What have you done from a fueling perspective? I mean, it's, it's a lot of training. And um, have you had to shift your, your fueling for recovery purposes or even like your fueling? I feel like right now we're entering the era of what David and I have called food doping. Like, I feel like we're seeing just yeah. these huge amounts of caloric intake during exercise. 
How have you thought about fueling both in terms of recovery and during training as well? Yeah. So um, with that too, I think there's a different mindset in fueling between Americans and the rest of the world, uh, like mm-hmm. usual. But, um, <laughs> the main thing being, it's, it's pretty related, but as Americans, we count in calories, which is sometimes mm-hmm. inaccurate depending on what you're looking at, whereas Europeans are purely counting in uh, grams of carbohydrates. And it's a much more informational piece because for the most part you're not seeing Europeans try different crazy diets and try to make it work and so you're not counting the protein or the fat in the content you want a mix of Mm -hmm. fructose uh, glucose sort of ratio in that kind of two to one or I guess one to two in that order uh, ratio Um, I've been sugar-based but when you also again look at Europeans who are probably I would say overall more successful on longer, like say 24 hour ultra events. Um, the, their nutrition looks a lot different. The, the sugar based stuff, like it's no wonder Americans are having so many stomach aches at this, these races or me specifically at least. Um, yeah. and it kind of sucked cause uh, when I laid out my nutrition plan for this year, for the most part, um, what I was carrying was still just sugar based. Uh, but <laughs> And I know when I started the sport in 2015-16, I told a couple people that I was um, having, I mean, so I was counting calories at the time, but I would have up to 400 calories an hour for, say, Lake Sonoma, and people were calling bullshit. But if you rewind it, all of a sudden, it's uh, that's 100 grams of carbohydrates per hour. And now you're looking at that's pretty much the norm, at least in cycling. Um, I would say it's on the yeah. extreme side of running still, especially after 12, 16 hours I find just to do sugar becomes extremely difficult. However, mm-hmm. um, I've played around a lot more with textures. So you have liquid gel bars that um, I've tried to kind of play around with timing of which and when. Um, and for the most part, it seems like a lot of people, you, you can try to do bars and gels and less calories in your bottle from the beginning in a longer ultra um, and then move to gels and maybe a stronger concentration and at the end you're typically still thirsty so you can still sip on something that's kind of uh sweet um it's not too too bad um so that kind of theory and then kind of just kicking out any sort of candy related stuff at the aid station um this was the first year that uh i guess kind of jess and i together made more of a game plan on what we were going to have at the aid station and trying to make it as more like real food ish like the closest mm-hmm. thing to candy we had were these biscuit cookies but what they provided was this like super big crunch sensation so when you look at another place to study um for the sport is actually through hiking is really interesting to me how they get over taste oh, fatigue yeah. flavor fatigue all sorts of things but um there's this like uh i don't i don't know her name off the top of my head but she's from scotland and she's like hiked everything but she talks a lot about changing up the textures, um, so crunchy, smooth, Interesting. liquid, and and how that can really help digest, continue to eat. Because the name of the game is to continue to eat, and so um, at different times you can still manage something. Um, but at our aid stations this year, some of the main things we had were um, going through uh, Alan Lim's uh, scratch thing, trying to make some sticky rice recipes. But we we went with kind Alan. of a vegetarian savory option with. Uh, some avocado and egg on the sticky rice, but um, we 
kind of messed up. We, we need to keep practicing our sticky part of the sticky rice. Uh, <laughs> and then, um, yeah, some, some cashews that were unsalted, uh, some, instead of going with just pickles, it went to, uh, pickled chips, pickle flavored kettle chips, uh, with some crunch, the, the, the biscuit cookies, um, and then melons have always gone down well in ultras specifically like cantaloupe or, um, honeydew, which, uh, in France, they just call it melon, which is pretty funny. Melon, everything's melon. <laughs> so how about outside of the training? Like, how much are you thinking about day-to-day nutrition? Um, so one of the things that's become harder um, this year is that uh, I, do, I don't have a nutrition sponsor. So um, I'm buying most of the things that uh, almost everything this year. And um when you're making purchases of like say a thousand fifteen hundred dollars worth of nutrition because i think it's important to feel during training i think you get a lot more quality out of your training and you you get a lot less residual fatigue and so i've always been a big eater during training however i would say training with francois um, has opened up maybe timed efforts with a little bit more depletion but we mm-hmm. kind of play a little games with that sometime of more or less who can go the longest without eating and first one eats a little bit of the loser but then we've also played games where we do that but maybe the second person that eats is uh maybe going to be the loser the big loser because the energy just doesn't come back because you just went a little too deep because you're too stubborn not to to grab a snack first when you needed it and some of that i think how often yeah. Sorry, sorry to jump in, but how often would you say you did those types of depletion? Because like even though we're the ultimate proponents of, you know, fueling everything, there mm-hmm. are complications obviously with fat oxidation and things like that. Like how often would you do that type of thing in training where you did a little bit more depletion? So I didn't do any of that during this block. Um and I would say I'd probably get away from that during important blocks. Um because mm-hmm. I think you really need to factor in that if, especially if you're doing it on a longer effort, over five hours, you might pay it back more than you would like and you're going to have residual fatigue a lot more. Um, so we would do it more during schema season when it was probably less important, I would say. So um, a bit more of the off-season cycles is when we would do it. I, I wouldn't play the have games you used as anything much like, uh, during the summer. Have you used anything like ketones at all in this process? Not recently. Um, I would say... Before ketones really hit the the mainstream stuff, I had a friend in Flagstaff try to recommend them to me, and he knew enough to be weary of it that it might be pseudo this or that. Um, for the most part, it's interesting. I don't think there's general good enough knowledge how when to use them, and you can also get weird side effects, uh, upset stomach, um, potentially too much peeing and stuff. So I don't. I don't regularly, I don't use it anymore, but I've tried implementing some before. They're quite, they're really, really expensive if you have to buy them. So I don't think it's ultimately worth it um, unless you can get a ketone sponsorship and maybe you can learn to use it in a <laughs> in a positive way. But for the most part, I, I haven't found it overly successful. They'll give you part of the company if you, if you decide that you'll say that you uh, yeah. <laughs> use them. Um, yeah. Okay, so going back to training, like with, how about structured workouts? Um, are you doing structured workouts in the context of some of those big UTMB weeks? Um, the answer is no. <laughs> so uh, there were probably zero structured workouts. However, there were, 
I think I had a little more fun with it and it's become more of a finding the right segment and just um, maybe the strides the day before or two days before and then just trying to hit a segment um, and just using that as your your my, my uh, workout effort. And typically I kept those under 20 minute efforts, but in, in over 20% wow, yeah. gradients. So um, I think... I did one at the beginning of the block and I was expecting, so I really wanted to do a TT up um, a climb here called Kuvi, um, which is the main yeah. ski hill that you see out of Aresh, uh, the main town. And um, went full gas, hit it when I think my after my first week of 100 miles during my block. So I, I might have had five main weeks during my block, 100 and then maybe 125, 125, 125 and then back to 115 maybe. Um, but then the, the vertical is in there. So yeah, but, um, first week I want to hit it on week one of five and then hit it again on the fifth week. And yeah. it actually surprisingly just went so well on the first one. I'm like, I'm not going back to do it because I'm probably only going to take away a negative side of it. Um, <laughs> and then by the end of the block, I was kind of contemplating, I, I was really, really close to hitting, like pulling the trigger on doing the, the vertical K and Chamonix on like wednesday or tuesday before the race or maybe oh. no 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 one i think eight days before the race um i was looking at hitting it but it just went to um the more i analyzed it i didn't want to go into chamonix when it was so busy um we'd probably have to stay the night because going back to the original question megan asked we live about an hour 50 minute drive from chamonix but it's all on mm -hmm. complete switchback roads uh both ways um so it's it's not the easiest drive it's quite exhausting so to do two hours there, two hours back, um, hit everything, We it's easier for us to just stay in Chamonix when we go. So more or less just went to, I can't waste my time with this. Um, it, it would have been the ultimate, like, uh, I think, gauntlet drop. And I've kind of done that yeah. at some races. <laughs> I did a big effort um, the Wednesday before Ultra Trail Cape Town. Sometimes I like doing that. Um, so it would have been about a 30-minute, 30 32-minute 30, effort to do a, that specific vertical um which was on the longer side of it i think 30 minutes you you can start to get maybe too much residual fatigue but then if you can keep it under 20 so i ended up doing one just out our back door that uh a friend hit one day and i uh, just like all right the weather's pretty good I'll, I'll just go do it and i did it the same day and uh that one's i think 26 percent and one 1.2 miles so that one was 16 minutes it was a pretty good one um but i think one so thing cool. that i've found out since i've been in france because i've started doing a lot more vertical races is that um surprising well maybe surprising unsurprising but i think i actually have a better talent in the vertical racing than i than i ever realized so i've started enjoying um doing some more vertical races and i'm actually doing a vertical kilometer on saturday but uh i'm actually kind of banged up oh from yeah a, a bike fall two days ago and i'm not I was pretty optimistic. Now I did it last year, about two, three weeks after UTMB, and it went really well. Um, but uh, right now, I'm not sure how I'm going to feel. Uh, I, I just did the route today, but um, my my glutes all messed up from falling on a bike. <laughs> so, but nothing's oh, wrong. Just, yeah, it's so wild. Your range about, is so impressive, and it's yeah. so cool to think about if you went to the VK in Chamonix like the week before the race. 
it would have blown minds just to have that one upload on Strava. Say, yeah, just that, let that be the one uh, yeah. that's predicting heading into the race. So, <laughs> so it, it goes so, into a very yeah. Killian-esque uh, sort of mind game that Killian does all the time. And I think people, all, all the time people used to get psyched out, but I think more and more and more, uh, there's probably a lot of similarities between myself and Killian in that sort of range where mm-hmm. maybe difficult to point to other people doing everything like that. But um, Killian, I think, would do that a lot in the past and people would just lose it. <laughs> it must be fun to have that level of fitness where dropping one run is like a mind fuck with someone on Strava. Yeah. So it, that has to be so, so cool. What? So you're an incredible gravel biker. Um, what percentage of those 125-mile weeks incorporate gravel biking? Uh, nothing's. Uh, there was no biking during that. So, um, But then immediately following UTMB, uh, biking for the next two weeks uh it's been basically uh about 10 hours i think last week on the bike um not too much uh i enjoy it i'm, I'm not incredible uh bike handler um i can go uphill very very quick on a bike but that's about it and i would say quick for an amateur because i think um i have huge respect for professional cyclists because i think just the pedal stroke in general is just an art form and essentially uh the amount of power that they can sustain is just, I'm just so inefficient uh, comparatively, so it doesn't work. Yeah. So in the context of your training, you do a couple of these like harder efforts, big volume, big vert. How much do you think you're like hitting Z3 on some of the steeper climbs that you're doing in training? Mm-hmm. Like, um, you know, because like my theory always for you, and please tell me if I'm wrong, is that you're doing a Norwegian style of training sometimes without it nece- or at least a lot, some threshold work, but without it necessarily being so structured in the context yeah. of some of the things I used to see on your Strava. Granted, you climb so efficiently that it's tough to tell, um, you know, without data. So, like, do you think you're like on some of these climbs hitting low mod efforts? I mean, things that you can sustain for hours and hours and hours, but still a little bit beyond maybe traditional aerobic threshold. Um, it. I would say a training block like for UTMB, I did a lot uh, either by myself or with my friend Simone Goslin. And um, mm-hmm. I would say it was very, very controlled. And that was another part of not being on Strava, not having pressure, was just uh, to probably keep it closer towards Z2. Uh, if, if you were to guess and define it, because um, I'm not wearing a heart rate strap. I'm not I, I'm not following heart rate. I It's effort-based for me, which is wildly inaccurate, I guess, scientifically speaking, but, um, heart rate straps, I don't think are consistently, um, accurate to rely on. And then it's just almost impossible to really measure power, um, like you would in cycling. So with that, it becomes, um, pretty difficult to, to go reliably off of what zone you're actually in. Um, the idea is that it's going to be very, very sustainable. Um, and then, but, yeah, I mean, things get out of control all the time. Like, I, I don't know. I don't care so much. I yeah. try not to worry about it. <laughs> I and, love it. And the descents usually are going to be a lot more chill. I'm not, there's almost never descents that I'm bombing for stimulation. Um, now that I say that, I guess there was one training run I, I did because I wanted a, a 1500 meter descent in, in a long day um, at the very beginning of the day. So, we can, again, we can get that out of our doorstep. So um, it takes four miles to get up to 9,000 feet, and you can drop 
5,000 feet from that mountain straight down. So that was in a training run, but for the most part, it wasn't fast. It was more just muscular, um, idea behind it. And, uh, um, but not, not bombing descents, um, where sometimes maybe I used to, uh, yeah, when I was younger, I would say my recovery was better. Um, I used to be able to do dumber things. So now I, I don't do as many <laughs> dumb things. Yeah. Like what, what I was able to do when That's... I was 26, 27, um, kind of blows my own mind of like that's that's crazy but then sometimes it starts to come back when i get into really really good shape still it's so cool how you've evolved over time where you've worked within the same system same approach but let yourself grow change age which has seemed to just give you more strength um you know it's pretty wonderful and i think you know it gets to some of our things to just like and get toward the end of the podcast like you've done it all now uh, you've conquered basically everything in the ultra end of this sport. What's your big scary goal after setting the course record at UTMB? Yeah. Well, I I would also say real quick that like the course record wasn't isn't really in mind at UTMB. I think it's one uh, of the few races that it truly transcends the course record. That if you're a UTMB winner, you're a UTMB winner because they've had so many alterations <laughs> to the course. I think purely yeah. that's more important. And even this course was a variation of what's considered the standard course but i think as you compare the numbers there's more and more realization that it's pretty comparable if not slower so it's fairly valid but um i i would say the accomplishment of winning utmb is good enough in itself um but what to do next i, th- I think i'm at a point in my career where i need to continue to evolve those sort of motivations because if i'm not excited to yeah. To do something different, to do something new, am I then I need to ask myself, am I still excited to to do the Western States, to do the, the UTMB and does that motivate me enough to continue to be at the top of the sport? And I mean more or less time will tell and we'll we'll see um kind of what how things plan out. But I'm trying to plan for next year and part of that is gonna be trying to spend a little more time, especially the first half of the year, uh back in Flagstaff. So, um, just to have, uh, oh, time cool. with friends and family, uh, in the U S. Um, so it's something that we we've missed being here in France. We've really, really enjoyed it. Um, and we plan on spending more time in France long-term, but it's a point in our lives that, uh, we're going to take probably a dedicated like six, eight months to do mostly U S based. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll try to choose. Well, yeah. And, and now looking at things, it'll probably be a two-year gap of even racing in the U.S. for me, which is kind of uh, strange to think about U.S. Wow. racers. I mean, I think only, like, you can think of Katie Scheid and Hilary Girardi of, like, but but they, like, full-time live in France sort of thing that uh, don't mm-hmm. race in the U.S. too often. Wow. It's, I'm so excited you're coming back to the U.S. I know. I know. <laughs> David, we would have to move to Flagstaff. Proximity to greatness. Exactly. Actually, we were talking, we loved Chamonix, and we're like, oh, we would have to move to Chamonix, but I think that's out. Yeah, <laughs> now that Jim's coming now, back. Now that Jim's coming back, that's out. That's fully out. But what do you feel like, I, I feel like, Jim, you've already left this incredible legacy on sport. Um, like, your accolades, who you are, what you've done, how you've evolved training theory. Like, I feel Actually, like- one thing I wanted to jump in there is on that point, when we teased to some of our patreon listeners that um you'd be on i got six different messages from people that you've done random acts of kindness to on the trail over the course of you know your life that probably little things that you don't even remember just whether they're racing or you saw them out on the trail so i think your legacy goes beyond like these general big things to also just the people you've 
impacted directly. Well, I mean, it's wild. I feel like there's these like big marks and then every like little things from responding to messages. But do you think about what you want your legacy to be from here on out? I mean, I obviously like you've already left this huge legacy on sport, but what do you want it to be now going forward and how does that impact your motivation? Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever set out for a purpose or a goal to, to leave a, a sort of legacy. So it's now, now people ask, but, um, it's never been an intention, like my intention to kind of do that. It's just been to try to, I guess it's a point in my life of something to do. Uh, and I just want to continue, um, with that at this point. And I, I don't know. I, I think even when you ask like people that have had a big breakthrough and they've won a championship or won this or that, like what's next, it's kind of just goes back to like, um, try to win it again i guess but the the competition side of it definitely, <laughs> definitely excites me um so it's hard to kind of chase some of the smaller races where they might have an old prestigious course record or my- mythical course record when it would just basically be a time trial um off the front and not much to like okay like people expect you to break the course record and they want to see that and that'll be a great show but say you don't get it like it's a big risk for, for not much payoff and it's kind of hard to get motivated behind that sometimes. Um, whereas the competition, like, I mean, at UTMB, the number of people that have become friends within the sport and I'm just excited to see them because we're racing together throughout the race and, and especially early when I'm a bit more mixed up between more and more people, um, or, or how many people, uh, yeah, are supporting me along the course. It becomes just like that's family, and and it's even been like I've I've missed that part of my past career at Western States because it's been two three years essentially um, since going back to um, Auburn, California, and in that area. I mean, I had a similar like kind of fairy tale breakthrough with Western States, and um, a lot of those people feel familiar and like family in the same way that uh, yeah. they're consistently there, consistently showing up, and they, they keep following you afterwards too. So um, there's some callings with that. But, Do you think uh, you might go back to Western States? Yeah, so right now I'm racing Nice 115K in two weeks uh, to try to – because they changed the gold ticket. So I need uh, – they changed it from UTMB. Yeah. The initial plan was to, to have the – the option in my pocket um, after UTMB, but then they switched that up to CCC. But then, interestingly enough, they they added another French race, and it's not too far. I don't have to fly. So uh, um, the plan right now is still to do Nice. Um, I would say the the ball hasn't gotten rolling on running yet. Um, so we're just trying to remain patient, recover still, and just feel good by by the race. But I'll be doing Nice 115K with uh, my friend Simon Gosselin, and then Jess will be doing the, the 50K there. So we're excited to go explore the south of France. It's, I just got chills. I know. It's so wild that even Jim has to just get a golden ticket. Yeah. Like, give the man a golden ticket. <laughs> There's other ways in. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that I, should... I think I've always been a sucker yeah. for going for the golden tickets, and I've always liked them. So I, I don't know. There's just no complication yeah. if you do it. I love it. I, I like you pr- doing... I prefer Nice as a coach who sends like athletes to Black Canyon and uh, canyons. I'm Actually, like, David's doing grindstone uh, coming ahead. I mean, theoretically, so, uh, thank uh, gosh, thank I gosh, heard Jim's that. not doing it. Yeah, I've COVID There's another right Walmsley so representing us at, at grindstone though. So, uh, which distance are you doing? The 100k. Okay, there's a, there's another Walmsley in the 100k. 
Oh, I'm oh, so excited. How, how closely related? Like, what's, <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's, the, what's the blood representation here? We might need to know this for your race, David. He's my twin brother. So it's... Oh, oh no. Shit. Oh, fuck. First, uh, Has he... Yeah. Oh, man, David. We're going to have one of Wait, those moments. He's gonna there's be, another one? He's going to be warming up. Yeah. I'm going to be like, I'm so sorry, David. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, we're Amazing. fraternal well, twins, and, and he doesn't have uh, the same running background. He, he's played men's rugby for his adult life and is built a bit different um but uh he's getting into he's gotten into running the last couple of years and he's, he's getting better and better and he he's really excited to always have some improvement that makes me so happy yeah, that's so cool <laughs> so you know one of the things i was thinking is that you know when we talk about the other sports someone like michael jordan if you saw the last dance documentary he's like and i took that personally about like after a while once you reach a certain level it seems like these goats of sport end up like, yes, there's internal motivation, but also there's this, these external drivers too. As you're going through the process, are you aware of like quote haters or anything like that? And do you get any motivation from that as you make some of these next decisions? Like Um, anyone that might doubt you or anything like that? I think there used to be perhaps more of that side of it, uh, earlier in my career and maybe <laughs> you quieted them all <laughs> as, yeah. as, a, as a younger version. Um, there might've been more of that and sort of motivation. I think at this point I've gotten to meet more people and, um, maybe at least kind of what's portrayed online of me is maybe shifted a bit in that, um, I think more, my real personality comes through and less of the just trash talking everywhere it's more uh i'm excited to race hard i'm excited to race friends i'm excited to race new people um new places and i think that sort of energy is a bit contagious and we all feel that to a degree so i think it's uh, a healthier uh, relationship with with running and not not worrying so much about any sort of haters and more or less i mean even during UTMB, I think uh, I was Zach's biggest fan as he was just running past me of like, oh man, you're going to do it. I'm <laughs> falling apart. Like, I, yeah. I, I think I've said it before, but basically if it's not me, I hope it's you. And I, I just, for, for all of us, I hope wow. one of us breaks through because um, we, we've all kind of carried a bit of that burden and I think it's unnecessary. Like, uh, it, it just is what it is and the the french are, have produced really really great champions at their own race and um but hopefully we can uh, block them out for a few years to come <laughs> oh my gosh any jim wamsley hater is like on the wrong side of history well I yeah mean, it's just fascinating to look back and like final reflection from me is thinking back to like getting to have that conversation with you post-race in 2016 and you know, i felt like i was like on the front end of it because like, i realized at that point this guy, not just your physical attributes, but your mental approach, you're going to be the GOAT, or at least like in competition for that. And to see the the changes from the wrong turn at Western States when you were on record pace to how you dealt with that, to how you've shined your light throughout that process through things like maybe how you were portrayed online, not being the gym I knew. And you fully just embraced this with Jess it's one of the coolest things I've ever seen. And like, as you reflect on those years, like what emotion comes to your head about, I mean, you know, you said 2015, 2016, going somewhat all in to now being on top of the, the sporting world. Like what emotion does that bring up to you? Um, I'm really grateful for it. I think uh, it just makes me <laughs> uh, like kind of, 
And I guess the other side of it, it goes to, I've, I've heard people when, especially I was a younger kid and stuff, they kind of say, and like, just believe in yourself and bet on yourself. And it's kind of cliche. You just go, oh, they're so talented. They're, they just, they, they could have done anything they wanted and they would have been successful at athletics. But um, for me, I would say things didn't come easy. It didn't come, nothing came the first try for the most part. So truly when I say like yeah. bet on yourself, like invest in yourself, um, I, I think that's one of the bigger takeaways. And But I mean, I, I felt lucky of how things worked out with my relationship with Western States that even there's times in this point in the last year or two of just, oh, that one was just too good. Maybe maybe at the end of the day, I'm just not meant to win UTMB and, and we'll see. And and I didn't want to even like measure success failure based off of that. But um, to see this one kind of come together like another fairy tale, it's just, uh, it's crazy. And it just like <laughs> the only way to sum it up is just pretty grateful for um, committing into goals and, and trying to control what I can control and and uh, just improve upon um, where I'm coming from. We cried when you crossed the finish I know. line. Yeah. Were, were, were there any tears for you after yeah. you crossed that yeah, finish yeah, line? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, I, I oh. completely lost it uh, when I saw my aunt at the finish line um, who's struggling with some health issues. And oh. It was just a really special moment that she was there yeah. to, to share it. And then uh, I think Jess and I shared some tears together too just because we know that we've kind of tried to uproot our, our lives in Flagstaff to come here and it hasn't been easy. We've, we've had difficulties like, uh, from, from just the bureaucracy side of things, but even, um, like we're, we're cramped. Jess isn't working here. So she feels, uh, sometimes like less motivated. I'm like, well, yeah, it's like not having a structure is yeah. not always the best thing. Like you gotta, it's, it's, sometimes not motivating to get out the door when you have all day to get out the door. When you have just a window, sometimes it's actually surprisingly maybe a better thing. So having some of that structure, some of that self-discipline side of things is, has been a struggle for both of us. Um, but I've had to kind of manage that for a few more years where it's something new to Jess. And, um, but, uh, she's had a really like yeah. great growth here and, um, she's enjoying it now more than ever as we've both become more comfortable here. You two are such a super team. It's such a super team. My gosh, it's wild. And I'm so excited you're coming back to the U.S. Yeah. Yes, mostly cool so thing. you can be on our Strava time zone, actually. Yeah. yeah, and also, we can start the Jim Walmsley method. It won't just be about running. We're going to talk about belief. We're going to talk about everything. Shooting your shot. You're going to sell 2 million copies, and it's going to go mainstream. So, yeah. uh, Jim, we're your biggest fans for life, and we can't wait to see what you do next on and off the trails. You're a fucking superstar. Well, thanks so much. Yeah, you're uh, way too complimentary and it makes me blush. And uh, But I, I love your positive attitude for <laughs> everyone. And um, I think it's just comes through as uh, you're just a really genuine person. And um, it's contagious to have that happiness. So uh, I love what you guys do and keep sharing the love on the trails too. Well, we'll have to end with something embarrassing. Jim, whenever something goes well in our house, and we have to save it, I would say we use this like once a month. It's like something really good. We say boom, boom with a joom, joom. So like joom, 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 is joom is like what we something say. that we've heard you called before. So we say joom, joom a lot. Yes. And then whenever we're really happy, we go boom, boom with the joom, joom, and, and then, then high, high five. five. Yeah. So um, it's kind of embarrassing, but you you're, you live with us like once a month when that yeah, happens. Yeah. Yeah. All of the great things in our house, we just channel the joom, joom. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. <laughs> awesome well jim we can't yeah you're the you're the best uh tell jess that we absolutely love her too and we're so proud of you both so our hope channel some of that hope that absolute belief that you have and see what big things are ahead you rock jim
Awesome. Thanks, guys. Bye. See you.